If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me to John chapter 21, not John chapter 1. Uh, There's uh, different ends of the gospel we'll be looking at. John 1, obviously, at the beginning. John 21 at the end. Uh, But if you want to follow along in the bulletin, you can do that as well. I'll be reading from the ESV this morning. Before we get started, let me do say uh, just a word of thanks and appreciation for you. I have known Nate, as he said earlier, for some time. We followed in each other's footsteps, or I guess he followed in mine, uh, and uh, left a big, uh, a big footprint uh, for those who came after him. Nate is dearly loved at First Pres in Jackson, uh, and obviously I know he's dearly loved here, but since the time that I've known Nate uh, and been involved with our band of brothers together, we have, I have known about you guys, heard about you guys, been praying off and on for you guys, and so it's a great delight to be here face-to-face in person with you, uh, and I look forward to meeting as many of you as I can, if I haven't already. John chapter 21 is a beautiful section of God's Word. We'll pray the Holy Spirit will give us eyes to see and ears to hear, but first, let me read. Beginning in verse 1, I'll read through verse 19 of John chapter 21. This is God's Word. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for They were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Son of John. Do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, 
Do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord. You know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said, to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, Follow me. The grass withers, the flowers, flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together this morning. Our great God and King, How grateful we are for your word. For your word is truth. We pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would come and inhabit this place and so inhabit our hearts and our minds that you would sanctify us by the truth and in the truth and unto the truth. O Father, grant us your spirit, we pray. We need eyes to see and we need ears to hear and we need minds to understand. Father, we believe. Won't you please help our unbelief? Grant us eyes, Father, and minds and hearts to see what Jesus is doing here, Father, and so apply it in our own lives. Send us, Father, we pray, so that we, like Peter, might feed your sheep and tend your lambs for your glory. And for your praise. Bless us, Father, we pray. Not for our sakes, but for yours. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. John chapter 21. It's the third time that Jesus appears to his disciples after being raised from the dead. The first time, we know very well, was on the very day of the resurrection itself. Jesus, after appearing to the women and sending uh, the women back to tell his disciples and Peter that he was no longer dead but alive, he appeared to all of them there in the midst of them. Thomas, doubting Thomas, missed that first meeting. He was not there. And you remember he said, unless I see with my own eyes and touch and put my finger, my hand in the hole in his hands, in his side, in his feet, I will not believe. And one week, approximately one week later, Jesus appeared for the second time with his disciples. And Thomas, having missed the first meeting, was there for the second meeting. Well, this now is the third meeting, the third occasion in which Jesus is appearing to his disciples. And on this occasion, to set the scene for this occasion, Simon Peter decides that he's going fishing. We don't know exactly why Simon Peter decides to go fishing here. We know Simon Peter had a a fishing background. 
And maybe, maybe, Simon was just itching to go fishing. And after following after Christ for approximately three years, the time had now come, and he could get back out on the water. Maybe, after a diet heavy with bread, he was just looking for some fish to eat. Maybe, maybe, maybe Peter just enjoyed being on the water. And although I'm not a hunter or a fisherman, an outdoorsman in that sense, I've played sports my whole life instead of hunting and fishing, as we said earlier in, I think it was the Sunday school hour. Um, nonetheless, I have been told this is true. Maybe Peter knew that a bad day on the water is far better than a good day in the office. And so he just was itching to get out onto the water and do some fishing. We're not really told in this passage explicitly why Peter decides to go fishing. But I think there's something more. I don't think it was the fact that Peter was looking to eat fish. I don't think it was the fact that Peter was just itching to get back out on the water. I think Peter was tempted to give up. I think Peter was discouraged and overwhelmed with his sin to the point that he was looking to go back to the only thing that he did really know and love, and that's fishing. There are several hints in the passage that something deeper is going on here. For one, this is the first time that Peter, we're told at least, this is the first time in the gospel accounts that Peter goes fishing, we're told, since being called to follow Christ in Luke chapter 5. There's no other record of Peter going fishing. For three years he's followed, and now Peter decides to go fishing. Now, after Jesus has been raised from the dead and appeared to his disciples twice, he decides to go fishing. Why? Why now? Why here? Not only that, but isn't it fascinating that this is the third time Jesus appears to his disciples? What happened the first two times? Jesus appears to his disciples the day of the resurrection. Thomas is not there, as we said. But who is there? Peter. And there's no mention of Jesus dealing with Peter's sin anywhere. It's the elephant in the room. And yet Jesus, as far as we know, makes no mention, no deal, there's no dealing with Peter and his failure. Not only for this first occasion, but for the second resurrection appearance too. Thomas misses the first one. He's there for the second. And in his unbelief, Jesus deals with Thomas immediately. The very next time Jesus sees Thomas, the second resurrection appearance, he deals with Thomas's doubting. He deals with Thomas's sin. But Peter's there on the second time, just as he was the first. And there's again no mention of Jesus dealing with Peter anywhere in the gospel record. Isn't that fascinating? And now after Two times when Jesus appears to his disciples, and there's no mention of Peter. You know, one of the reasons I think we love Peter is because Peter just seems to be the anti-holy apostle. He's just not. He's just the common apostle, isn't he? He's got feet of clay, and we see it all over the scriptures. 
He puts his foot in his mouth time and time again. And as someone who does test extroverted, I have a tendency to think out loud and to process out loud. And I have a tendency to put my foot in my mouth as well. Just ask my wife and my kids. That has been known to happen from time to time. The Peter of verse 7 that gets dressed in order to swim. That's the Peter we know and love. This impetuous Peter that seems to do and say what all of us can readily identify with, and yet that impetuous Peter is invisible in the first two resurrection appearances. There is no mention of Peter. It's like Peter's a wallflower. He's silent, if you will, in these first two resurrection appearances. What's going on? Where's impetuous Peter on those first two resurrection appearances? You see, I think for all of these reasons, something deeper is going on in Peter's experience. Since Luke 5, when he and the sons of Zebedee, James and John, with him, were pressed into service and left their nets behind and became fishers of men. Since Luke 5, they've not returned fishing. And now for the first time, Peter and the sons of Zebedee go back. And they go back to go fishing. I think it seems, to me at least, as though Peter is overwhelmed, we don't know exactly, overcome by his own failure, a sense of his own failure, perhaps. Maybe it's discouragement at knowing Jesus had dealt with Thomas right away and yet seemed to be passing him by. You ever experience anything like that in the Christian life? I know I have. As a pastor, someone blessing a friend someone encouraging, pouring out blessing upon someone else, all the while he seemed to be passing me by. Have you ever experienced anything like that? God comes along and maybe is convicting a friend, maybe is is leading them into a conviction of their sins so that they can feel the weight of the glory of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is greater than all of our sins. All the while you are left ignored. Seemingly. No doubt that's part of where Peter was. Jesus was silent, not just once, but twice. Peter was asked, by the way, I said this in the first service, if you've not looked at the, the relationship between gnosko and the Greek, I, I'm sorry, I don't like to mention the Greek words. I didn't this morning. Shame on me. I need to, I need to wash my mouth. That was soap. Um, uh, between uh, to know in the, uh, in, in the New Testament, knowledge and love. If you've never studied that relationship, I encourage you today to go and do that. Look at that relationship between knowledge and love, and you'll see the two go hand in hand. I've argued that love is basically knowledge. I can unpack that later if you'd like me to. But nonetheless, if that's true, isn't it fascinating what Jesus is doing here and what Peter is asked in John 18? When he's asked three questions and he denies knowing Christ, he's asked, surely you know him. You know him, you love him because of that connection, knowledge, and love. And what does Jesus say here? Three times he's asked, do you know me? Do you know me? Do you love me? 
And three times he says no. And here Jesus says, Peter, do you know me? Do you love me? Do you love me? We don't know exactly where Peter was. But it certainly seems like all of the signs are pointing in John 21 to someone who's discouraged, who's overwhelmed with their sin. And Jesus seems to be passing Peter by. I wonder if there are any here this morning who are there. I wonder if you have ever been there, overcome, overwhelmed by your sin, Maybe even this morning as you drove to church, a harsh word to your spouse or to your children. Maybe an impure thought even. And that's enough as you walk into this gathering, knowing you're coming to serve the Lord to overwhelm you with just feelings of guilt and shame. Maybe again, you felt as though the Lord's passing you by. If that's where you are this morning, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you by by reminding you that Peter was there first. Peter was there long before you were. But more than that, I want to encourage you just by what Jesus does and how Jesus treats Peter. So I want to argue here this morning that Jesus moves mountains to meet Peter at the point of his sin in a way that will experientially, not just intellectually, but experientially affect Peter down to his bones. Let's look at that, and let me argue that this morning. Three things I want to look at this morning in the time that we've got together. Three things. The first is what I want to suggest it seems to be the preparation that Jesus allows the preparation that Jesus allows. Why does Jesus not deal with Peter's sin right away? He deals with Thomas right away. Thomas doubts. The first, he misses the first meeting. He doubts. And Jesus deals with it the very next time he sees him. Why does Jesus wait? Why doesn't he deal with it right away? It seems unloving. It seems unkind. It seems capricious. And I think at times like that, if you've ever been there in your life, if you've ever wondered what God is doing, why is he allowing this? Why is this providence in my life? Why are these circumstances part of what I have to go through? If you've ever been there, you'll know exactly, no doubt, what Peter was grappling with and what, and what we can look at this now and grapple with. Why on earth would God not deal with Peter? It's the elephant in the room. Everybody must have, been, must have known that and been looking for that to happen, and yet it didn't happen. Not only once, but twice it didn't happen. Why? What well, times like that, all we can do is fall back on the character of our God. And we don't know. The text doesn't tell us why Jesus doesn't deal with Peter right away. But the Bible does tell us that he is loving and altogether gracious. He's slow to anger, and he's abounding in loving kindness. 
And so whatever we look at, whatever we read into what's going on here, we must read it in light of the character of our God, the character of the one who is doing this with Peter. And so it tells us that whatever is in mind here, in the mind of Jesus, whatever is going on in the mind of Jesus, we know that he will always be as drastic as necessary and as gentle as possible. As drastic as necessary but as gentle as he possibly can be. So whatever's going on here in the life of Peter, the least we can say, or maybe the most we can say, is that the time was not right to deal with Peter's sin on the first occasion. The time was not right on the second occasion because God doesn't do it. Jesus doesn't deal with his sin until the third occasion. So whatever we can say, given the character of our God, There's a loving and gracious and for the good of Peter, well-intentioned purpose that's in mind. Maybe, maybe Jesus knew that the sin was not ready to be dealt with in Peter's life. Maybe, maybe Peter had stuffed the sin. Maybe Peter had been dealing with the grief and the pain and the heartbreak of denying his Lord three times when it was put to him in a moment moment of, of need and urgency. And maybe that grief and that pain overwhelmed him and he had spent days weeping and weeping out of conviction and grief. And having been immobilized by his sadness and grief, he realized the only way he could function was to stuff it down and not deal with the sadness anymore, but just to stuff it so he could put one foot in front of the other. Maybe, maybe that's where Peter was. And so Jesus knew that that sin had to be brought back up to the surface before it could be dealt with. It couldn't be submerged down deep there and still have the same effect. It had to be brought up to the surface so that it could be dealt with fully and completely. We don't know that but it certainly seems to be in keeping with the character of our God. The good purpose, the good natures, the the loving kindness of our God who is always as drastic as necessary and yet as gentle as possible. And so that's the preparation that that Jesus seems to allow. He allows time to go by. The time's not right to deal with Peter's sin until here on the third resurrection appearance. The second thing I want us to see this morning is the conviction that Jesus brings. Because regardless of what may or may not have been Jesus' intention with Peter in regard to waiting until the third resurrection appearance, we know that Peter, when when Jesus does appear to Peter, when Jesus finally does deal with Peter's sin, we know he brings great conviction of sin. Because what does Jesus do? How does he appear to Peter? How does he deal with Peter on this third resurrection appearance? Did you catch the hints in the text? If you have looked at this, if you've studied it, no doubt you've seen this quite readily. But look at verse 4. We're told that Jesus appears. They have been fishing all night, and just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Just as the day was breaking. What time of day is that? It's about the time of the rooster crowing, isn't it? 
We don't know if the rooster had crowed at this point. We're not told. We're not told. But it was about that time for the rooster to crow. And if you look down at verse 9, they gather around a charcoal fire. I asked this in the first service, and somebody actually got the right answer. How many times does the Greek word here, one Greek word for charcoal fire, how many times does the Greek word occur in the New Testament, do you think? Twice. Can you guess the other occasion? John chapter 18, when Peter denies knowing Christ three times, he's around a charcoal fire. The only two times this word is used in the New Testament. So Jesus comes to Peter, and he comes at the same day, the time when the rooster is going to crow, and he appears to Peter around a charcoal fire, and what does he do around a charcoal fire? He asks him three questions. And basically, it's the same three questions that Peter was put around the fire. Do you know me, Peter? Do you know me, Peter? Do you know me? You think Peter got the point? We know he did. Look with me at verse 17. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved. He was grieved. Because Jesus said to him the third time, do you love me? Do you see what Jesus is doing? Jesus comes to Peter finally when he does come to Peter. And he recreates the scene of Peter's failure. So that he doesn't just come. Isn't this beautiful? I love the way Jesus does this. And isn't this the way Jesus so often works in our lives? He doesn't come to Peter and he wags his, face in, wags his finger in Peter's face. Peter. How could you? Peter, how could you? How could you deny knowing me? Three times, Peter. Really, Peter? Really? Is that what you got? Is that all that's left of the three years that I've poured into your life? Really, Peter? He could have done that, but he didn't do that. Instead, what does he do? He comes to Peter and he recreates the whole scene of Peter's failure so that Peter not only is convicted of his sins, but he feels it down deep. You see, Peter has now an experiential reminder. He's created the whole scene all over again. Peter is transported back to the very scene of his failure. Don't you know? There had to have been tears as this is going on. As he's crushed and grieved. The NIV's translation is hurt. Peter was hurt that Jesus asked him the third time. Peter is convicted. Whether or not the sin needed to come back to the surface to be dealt with, we don't know. But it certainly seems as though it's there at the surface now. Jesus has brought it there by recreating the whole scene of Peter's failure. So I was thinking through this, I was reminded of something that St. Augustine says in his confessions about the Lord doing doing exactly the same thing and bringing conviction in Augustine's own life for his varied misdeeds. And I wanted to read it to you because I think this is exactly what the Lord does. He did it in Augustine's life. He did it in Peter's life. And I think this is exactly what God does many times in our lives, too. Listen to what Augustine said about the Lord bringing conviction into his own life. 
Augustine said, O Lord, you turned me around to look at myself. For I had placed myself behind my own back, refusing to see myself. You were setting me before my own eyes so that I could see how sordid I was, how deformed and squalid, how tainted with ulcers and sores. I saw it all, and I stood aghast. But there was no place where I could escape from myself. If I tried to turn my eyes away, you brought me face to face with myself once more, forcing me upon my own sight so that I should see my wickedness and loathe it. I stood naked before my own eyes. Isn't that what Jesus is doing with Peter? He recreates this whole scene all over again, as I said before, moving mountains as you were, organizing and orchestrating the events so that Peter and everyone else, no doubt, would see the scene has been recreated and Peter would see his failure. He would see himself and he would stand aghast. If that's where you are this morning, let me encourage you. That our God, who is as drastic as necessary and as gentle as possible, brings conviction into our lives. And oftentimes he does it experientially. Praise God if he does and when he does. But when he does, he always brings the conviction unto restoration, unto repentance, unto being forgiven and restored into his Fellowship. And that's exactly what he does here in John 21. After bringing great conviction into Peter's life, Jesus, I want to argue, now restores him. How does he do that? Because it's certainly not explicit in the text. There's no mention here, Peter, I forgive you. There's no mention of that anywhere in this text. There's no mention here of, Peter, I know what you did. Now go and sin no more or whatever the case may be. Jesus says nothing like that. All Jesus does is recreate the scene of Peter's failure. And then notice what he does second. Because he doesn't just recreate one scene. Those of you who are familiar with the New Testaments will know Jesus has also been recreating another scene here. And that's the very calling of Peter from Luke chapter 5. Look with me at Luke chapter 5. The last time that Peter was fishing, that we know of, at least from what we're told in the New Testament, the last time he was fishing, this is the account of it in Luke chapter 5. I'll begin reading in verse 1. Follow along if you've got that in front of you. We'll read through verse 11. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets, getting into one of the boats, which was whose? Simon's. He asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, and I think probably I've said this before, I think probably that should be better translated here, Sir. Sir, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I'll let down the nets. 
And when they had done this, right, carpenter telling a fisherman, seasoned fisherman, to let down their nets after they've been fishing all night with all of their experience at play and and they caught nothing. And a carpenter comes along and says, throw down your nets. All right. All right. We'll do it. When they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats, so they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you'll be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Luke 5. The last time Peter had been fishing. The last time Peter and the sons of Zebedee had been fishing. And now here they return to fishing once more. And what does Jesus do? He recreates the scene of Peter's failure, but now he also does it in a way in which he's now recreating the scene of Peter's calling. He's gone all the way back to exactly the defense, the events of Luke chapter 5. And Jesus says to them, unknown, he stands on the shore. They did not know that it was Jesus, we're told, in verse 4. And Jesus says, do you have any fish? No, they said. They'd been fishing all night and they had caught nothing. Sound familiar? And what does this unknown figure say to them? Cast the net on the right side of the boat. Cast the net on the other side of the boat and you will find some. So they did it. And they were not able to haul the net in because of fish. We're told elsewhere that it was straining. It was so, so many fish, 153. There were so many, but the net was not torn. No doubt it was on the verge. It was breaking, but it was not broken. Do you think Peter understood? As if that's not clear enough, look at verse 19. Jesus seems to end this whole pericope, this whole section that we've dealt with here. Jesus ends it with almost the exact same Challenge, call, Peter, follow me. What's Jesus doing? In recreating Peter's failure, no doubt he was giving Peter an an experiential understanding of his sin, experiential understanding of his sin that went beyond an intellectual bowing of the head, tipping of the cap. This was something Peter felt down deep. And now Jesus comes and recreates the scene of his calling. It's as if I think Jesus is telling Peter, Peter, I know what you've done. We all know what you've done. We've recreated the whole scene here, Peter, so that you can feel it. I know it. You know it. We all know it. Peter, follow me. It's as if Jesus is saying, Peter, it doesn't matter what you've done. To borrow a phrase we see over and over in the Scriptures, Jesus seems to be saying to Peter, Peter, I'll remember your sins no more. 
I'll put them as far from me as the east is from the west. We'll wipe the slate clean. It's as though nothing has ever happened. That has happened. We all know it's happened, Peter. We've recreated the scene for all to see and to know and to feel. And yet, Peter, follow me. We oftentimes say, don't we, to one another, I'll forgive, but I'll never forget. It's a grand and glorious promise in the Scriptures that in Christ, God does not say that. But He says, I forgive and I forget. I'll remember your sins no more. I'll put them as far from me as the east is from the west and I will never treat you as though you've sinned. I will treat you in a way that will not take any of your sins into account. That seems to be exactly what Jesus is telling Peter by recreating the scene of Peter's calling. He's pressing Peter back into service. The Peter who was leaving and going fishing, now Jesus says, no, Peter. Remember, I called you to be fishers of men, Peter, not fishers of fish. Follow me, Peter. Don't give in to the discouragement because of your sin. Yes, we know you've sinned, but Peter, my grace is greater. He doesn't say that. That certainly seems to be the overwhelming implication. I don't think Nate said it this morning as part of the confession, but I, uh, just this morning's service, but in the earlier service, I think he did say something to the effect that grace always wins out in the end for the Christian. Isn't that the glorious reality of the Christian experience? Is that grace always has the final word for the Christian. Satan will never have the final word. Your sins will never have the final word. God's grace in Christ Jesus will always have the final word. You see, though our sins increase, praise God, His grace super increases. And that, I think, is the message that Jesus is giving to Peter as he recreates the scene of Peter's calling. You know, there are many figures in history, in the Bible, outside of the Bible, of men and women who had an experiential understanding of their sin. Coupled with, and because of that, they had an experiential understanding of God's grace and the forgiveness that was theirs in Christ Jesus. And those things, that experiential understanding of their sin, coupled with an experiential understanding of how much grace they've been given, that all of their sin Jesus took upon himself and died for in the place of. And God used that to incredible degrees. Apostle Paul's life, who calls himself the worst of sinners, the chief sinner, the foremost sinner. Martin Luther, Samuel Rutherford, John Bunyan, John Newton. Um, there's many that we could think of off the top, off the top of our heads. And those are just a few off the top of mine, who had this overwhelming experiential understanding of their sin coupled with an overwhelming experiential understanding of God's grace. And because of that, they went out and they 
served. They fed God's sheep. They, they tended his lambs. Isn't that exactly what Jesus seems to be doing in Peter's life? Isn't that why he's waiting until the third resurrection appearance? For, because for whatever reason, the timing's not right, and the impact will not be there. And when he finally does come, he recreates the scene of Peter's failure, and then he recreates the scene of Peter's calling. It's preparation. It's preparation for what's to come, for usefulness in the kingdom of the Lord. Because as Nate mentioned earlier, just a few days later, basically, Peter will preach two sermons, one on Pentecost morning and one following, when 5,000 people will come to faith in Christ. Isn't part of what Jesus is doing here preparing Peter for usefulness? In the kingdom. Now, I'm sure, well, hope it'd be great if he did, but I'm sure God does not have in store for me or for you, probably, preaching two sermons and 5,000 people being converted and coming to faith in Christ. Uh, it'd be great if it happened for all of us. That'd be wonderful. But whatever it is that God's got in store for us, whatever discouragement you may feel, Whatever overwhelming, overcome, overcoming feeling, you're overwhelmed by your sin, you're overcome by your own sins and the guilt and the weight of the guilt and the shame and all the rest, whatever of that you may feel, remember that God's grace is greater than all of your sin. And that Jesus died so that we might be set all of Peter's sin, all of mine, and all of yours, if you believe in Christ, is nailed to the cross, and we bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. And let that send you out to speak and to teach and to write and to share and to do and to act, and to serve, so that we might feed his sheep and tend his lambs. Amen? Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, how grateful we are for your word. Father, we pray that you would render to us a conviction of sin, and that you would do that unto restoration, that we might know how much we've been forgiven and go, having been loved much, loving much, having been forgiven much, forgiving others much. Father, forgive us. We don't love others much. We don't forgive others much. Father, and we're ashamed to say that reflects upon how much we think we've been forgiven. Father, raise our awareness of how much we've been forgiven. Raise our understanding experientially of how much you've done for us in and through the cross and then help us to love and to serve and to forgive and to go. That the name of Jesus might be proclaimed and praised. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.